Hello, and welcome to Decarbonize, the clean energy podcast from Fresh Energy. Fresh Energy is a Minnesota nonprofit working to speed our state's transition to a clean energy economy. My name is Joe Olson. I do communications here at Fresh Energy, and I'm here today to share with you a recording of the first webinar in our truly affordable four-part webinar series taking place this July. In this discussion, Fresh Energy's Margaret Cherney Hendrick and Precipitate's Elizabeth Turner dig into how all electric affordable housing can really work. One note about the recording, I missed the first 10 seconds when I hit record, so you'll be joining mid-introduction with Michael Noble, Fresh Energy's Executive Director. And with that, I will begin the recording. Thanks for tuning in. It can be entirely powered by a very, very small amount of renewable electricity. That would be housing that would be truly affordable over the long term. And I don't need to tell you how important uh, this uh, issue is, this climate issue, this housing issue, this equity issue, with this incredible economic downturn and the uh, apparent inequities in our society. We all have a responsibility to build back and build back better than we had before. Right now, buildings account for uh, nearly 40% of the total energy use across Minnesota. And uh, every reasonable and well-informed person now agrees that we need to have a net carbon neutral economy by the middle of the century. So it makes no sense at all for us to be building new buildings with a carbon footprint, especially if we can economically and affordably, building, affordably build buildings without any carbon footprint at all. So let's work together to create super efficient, affordable housing that addresses the climate change, addresses equity, addresses a community economic development. And um, we have a terrific program of four, four, four conversations. Before we uh, start today, I wanna give a shout out uh, to our sponsor, uh, Stoll Reeves LLP, uh, that's hosting this uh, web series. I also want to uh, thank all these incredible promotional partners who helped to spread the word. I think we had nearly 325 people registered by this morning. And with that, I think I'll turn over the microphone uh, to my colleague, uh, the magnificent Margaret Cherney Hendrick. She's the director of Fresh Energy's Beneficial Electrification Program. And I'm gonna uh, turn off my microphone and turn off my camera. So with that, uh, Margaret Cherney Hendrick. Thanks so much, Michael. And as Michael said, my name is Margaret Cherney Hendrick. I direct Fresh Energy's Beneficial Electrification Program. And I am extremely excited to be joined today by Elizabeth Turner, founder and architect of Precipitate. Precipitate is known as a firm that responds to the pressing social, economic, and ecological justice issues of today through deep listening and engagement. As a passive house consultant, Elizabeth pioneered pre-certification of the hook and ladder development in Minneapolis which is the first large multifamily project to FIAS plus 2015 standards in climate zone 6A. This project is considered a testing zone for the industry and a model for super efficient structures. I'm especially excited that Elizabeth is kicking off this series because as a thought leader in the field, she's going to bring her real life experience to the conversation and dig into how all electric affordable housing can really work. She'll present for about 10 minutes, and then the final 15 minutes will turn to a question and answer period. Um, please use Zoom's Q&A feature to submit your questions as we go along, 
and there's an upvote function where you can upvote questions that you think are particularly relevant, um, please don't use the chat function, um, so only the Q&A box. So with that, I'm going to turn the mic over to Elizabeth. Welcome. Hello, everyone, and thanks so much for being here today. I've been really um, inspired by the work that Fresh Energy is doing to create equitable energy efficiency. And um, I'm going to speak about some of the projects that we're working on um, towards all electric housing. And there's quite a range from large affordable apartments, townhomes, and single family, and a cluster development accessory dwelling unit in Minneapolis. Um, and I also want to acknowledge that this doesn't happen alone. So we serve as uh, our, uh, as a, a certified passive house consultant on a lot of these projects. And it doesn't happen without architects and engineers and contractors who are willing to dig in and um, learn something new and dig into the building science. It doesn't happen without developers who are who have a vision for the future that is um, beyond kind of the standard construction we're doing today. And it doesn't happen without public policy that incentivizes and supports um, these energy efficient buildings. So you'll find um, the names of some of the partners on the slides and I'm also happy to um, answer more questions about who the partners were and a lot of that is available on our website as well. So the the projects that I'd like to talk about are Hook and Ladder in Minneapolis. That's the one that you've seen on all the advertising. 59 units um, certified to pass pass standards. That one is complete and constructed. Westside Flats 3B is in St. Paul. That's 82 units, um, breaking ground in the next couple of months, hopefully. And then we're also kicking off work with Bayview Affordable Housing in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, and there are there's a range of projects. That's the drawing that you see to the bottom left, um, ranging from uh, townhomes to a 48 unit apartment building and a community center. So all pursuing passive house certification. Um, we've been working on Monterey East co-housing to do some passive house townhomes there um, with the Community Action Center of Northfield on duplexes and again with Bayview on some townhomes. And then in the single family realm, we're working on a, a couple of um, single family all electric orchid grid cabin, as well as Uptown Straw House in Minneapolis, which is an ADU. And um, if you want to learn more about that project, I won't be talking about it today or join a straw house build, you can visit uptownstrawhouse.weebly.com to learn more about it. Next slide. So we have all these crises going on right now. We have a climate crisis. We have a crisis of systemic racism. Um, we have a crisis of affordable housing and we have um, also now a crisis of public health. And it seem, it's really hard with all of these things going on to say like, why should we be focusing on energy efficiency? It seems like there are so many bigger things that we should be tackling. And the reason that we at Precipitate have been focusing on it is because we really do think that focusing on energy efficiency impacts deeply all of these other crises we're dealing with. So, this diagram is trying to get at that. We, when we focus on energy efficiency and affordable housing, we can really combat some equity and environmental justice issues. Um, future presenters will talk more about this, but there is a correlation between people who live in affordable housing, um, and sorry, people who are renters and um, lower income and people of color. Um, and energy efficiency in that affordable housing really impacts the comfort and health of the people who live there as well as um, energy independence and water. Next. 
So what is Passive House? Really, we're focusing on reducing the energy consumption from space conditioning through an efficient envelope. And when we think about the most energy efficient envelope possible, we'd like think of a styrofoam ball. Um, that is what we'd want to be building. And obviously that's not realistic. We need to be breathing, we need to see out, we need spaces to live. And that's kind of the whole point of housing. So when we're thinking about energy efficiency, we're ba balancing what is from a building science perspective, most um, energy efficient, and then what, what do we need in spaces? So think of a winter coat. It's warm, it's airtight, um, it's energy efficiency for your body, but you also have those openings to bring in joy and delight and make it usable. Um, so in Passive House, we focus on four main things that I'll be telling some stories about. So windows, super insulation, thermal bridge free and airtight envelope, and that improves our envelope enough that we can focus on a reduced um, uh, systems for heating and cooling the space and energy recovery and continuous ventilation. Next. So there are a lot of benefits beyond energy, and I encourage you to read a really great white paper, The Non-Energy Benefits of Energy Efficiency and Weatherization Programs in Multifamily Housing, where a lot of these um, come from. And I just want to highlight a couple. So for benefits for the occupant, there's really has been proven to be um, increases in occupant comfort and wellness and resilience in cases of extreme weather and power outages. For community, this is really a chance to put uh, our ideas about equity into practice. And um, there's also been evidence of lower turnover and more resilience and care for vulnerable populations. And then it, for the owners themselves and developers and clients, um, focusing on energy efficiency opens up a lot more funding opportunities and then also reduces maintenance and operation costs. So we worked with the Community Action Center of Northfield on um, designs for affordable townhomes. And when we compared standard construction to passive house compliant construction, we saw a 65% reduce in anticipated um, ener energy use of the buildings. Um, going from uh, energy use intensity of 54 kVTs per square foot per year to 19. And you can see most of that happened in a reduction in space heating and then also a reduction in hot water. Next. So when we looked at the two different kinds of wall assemblies, the one on the left is kind of good standard construction. It has R21 fiberglass bat insulation, but when you take into account the heat that's lost um, because of the two by four wood studs, um, that drops to about uh, R16. On the right, we have um, the passive house wall, which has continuous exterior insulation, and that is more in the range of R36 and also um, considers airtightness. Next. We also thought about thermal bridging. So all of these places are where two pieces of the building come together and there's a potential, high potential for heat loss. And we worked with the contractor and design team um, to minimize the um, heat loss to those locations. And next slide is, um, one instance where in standard construction, we had a thermal loss where the bearing walls sit on a foundation below. And um, when we pulled this up on the screen and talked about it, the contractor realized that we could just continue that insulation all the way um, below, which resulted in not only a more efficient building, but more cost savings and easy, easier construction. Next. Um, all of this led to us being able to have a 
all electric heating and cooling system. So we used an air to air heat pump with electric backup, uh, continuous energy recovery ventilation. So if you're not familiar with that, it's when you're exhausting air from your conditioned spaces. So in the winter, that's warm, um, humid air that you have spent energy to heat and um, you pass it by the cold dry air that's coming in and you can recover a substantial portion of that energy and not have to reheat or rehumidify that air. And then we also use an electric heat pump um, hot water heater with drain water heat recovery. So that's just a really simple coil tube um, that uh, is, is copper that goes on the drain line and um, recovers some of that heat. Next. Um, so on the larger scale, how does passive house energy use compared to existing housing stock? So this is a study that CSBR did in 2015. They looked at 65 apartment buildings, uh, sorry, 51 properties with an average of 65 units. So really st uh, standard affordable housing stock in the state of Minnesota. Uh, found the average energy use was 76.2 kb per square foot per year. When we compare that to what was modeled for hook and ladder, now we have we're going to have actual performance data upcoming, but it was just built in 2019. Um, that is projected to be closer to 22.4 kbTs per square foot per year. And you can see a lot of that is coming from a reduction in space heating. Next. So looking at hook and ladder, a couple of things to point out. Um, this building not only is performing to a higher standard and substantially less energy use than typical, um, but it is right on a railroad track, which you can see in the background of that picture. And when we were doing site tours, it was kind of miserable <laughs> with all the trains going by um, multiple times an hour. Um, we'd have to stop our tours in order to talk and going into the completed building, um, your people are able to be in that space and, and barely hear the engine as it's rolling by right next to the building. Um, so thinking of that from a user perspective too is um, really important. We're thinking about the quality of the spaces that we're putting it in. Also, often affordable housing happens in some like the leftover sites in cities. Um, Westside Flats, th this project that will be constructed soon, hopefully this year, um, it was designed before there was a desire to go to Passive House, so it was a little bit harder to get to those targets. And windows became a really important strategy, so we used a higher performing window um, than we were able to use on hook and ladder. Um, and we also ended up getting rid of the mullions, the kind of the dividers between these windows. So we moved from six panes of glass to one, and that was a strategy that helped us get just enough under the targets to be able to pass um, to passive house standards. Next. Um, the other piece when thinking about passive house design and high performance is that certification and verification are actually really critical for high performance buildings. Um, not only to make sure that they're built as they were designed, but to make sure that when you have really airtight and well sealed buildings, you're eliminating all of the, the um, issues with um, moisture and mold and kind of um, making sure you have a high performance, low maintenance building uh, into the future. Next. Um, and a lot of questions about cost. How did this compare? So on hook and ladder, you can see that the um, Theus building and the standard building had a pretty comparable cost for um, the development per unit. And one of the reasons for that is that the standard building had underground parking and the passive house building focused on passive house um, did not. So I think it, it is important to think about 
um, there's potentially a 10 to 15% increase in costs for passive house over standard construction. However, there, um, the whole design process is about choices. So what choices are we making that um, prioritize the things that matter to tenants and to cities and thinking about these crises that we're dealing with in particular. And um, the other thing that we found is in states that have incentivized a passive house for affordable housing and in, in their QAP process, um, the costs are really dropping rapidly. As, the, as some, because this is new, that the costs are higher, as it's more widely adopted in the marketplace, we anticipate that the costs can drop um, similar to other, uh, other states that we've seen, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, New York, um, Washington. Next. So this really comes back to um, this final slide and I want to leave you with this before I take some questions. Um, by focusing on energy efficiency in affordable housing, we are making an impact on the crises that we're dealing with as a society today, um, specifically with equity and environmental justice and affordable housing and the health and wellness of people who are living in affordable housing. So thank you for being here and I can't wait to take your questions. Great, thank you so much, Elizabeth. That was wonderful. Um, and before we start the Q&A, I just wanna remind everyone that the Truly Affordable webinar series is going to be returning next week with a conversation between my colleague, Janice Watts, Policy Associate with Fresh Energy's Energy Access and Equity Program, and St. Paul City Council Member, Mitra Jalali. Um, and they'll be discussing the connection between energy and housing stability. So we hope you will be able to join us next week for that discussion. Um, and also on behalf of everyone here at Fresh Energy, we really thank you for attending part one of our truly affordable webinar series. A recording of this webinar will be posted on our website and our podcast, Decarbonize the Clean Energy Podcast. You can also learn more about Fresh Energy's work at our website. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, check out the latest on our blog and make a donation. Thank you so much for all of the work, Elizabeth, you did to prepare a great presentation and I'm really excited to move into the Q&A. Um, I see quite a few questions coming in now through the Q&A box, so keep those coming please and upvote if you like them and I'll, I'll pull from these as well as some of the um, questions that were submitted during registration. So let's see. So the first that's rising to the top here um, and this is from Matt, 10 to 15% cost increase in construction recovered in savings to tenants and society in how many years? And can those savings be worked into the finances overall? Yeah, so I, I've seen other studies that have shown a pretty quick payback. We are still waiting on, like we just built these projects, so we don't have payback numbers yet, but that's something that we're working on. Um, for the Northfield affordable homes, we anticipate we'll get those numbers, um, but we finished our work on Wednesday and the contractor is doing some pricing exercises. So we anticipate in the next couple of months, we'll have data on that and you can check our website or reach out to me um, for updates. Great. Um, let's see, this next question is from Ben. I often hear about financing barriers to affordable and efficient development. What advice do you have about approaching banks or other key players to finance a project that achieves these goals? Mm -hmm. um, I think getting an appraiser who understands the value of energy efficiency is really critical. And um, not all 
you know, not a, you're looking at a kind of a, a square foot cost. Um, so if you're comparing to a standard construction and not looking at the savings and energy efficiency, um, you won't be able to get financing to cover the cost of the project that you, you need. So having those upfront con conversations with appraisers, having appraisers reach out to building science professionals that are on your team are really critical um, for making your projects financeable. Um, and for this next question, we have another slide to queue up here. This is uh, a question that was submitted anonymously during registration. Um, affordable housing funding providers have a great deal of influence over the quality, performance, and energy efficiency of the affordable housing projects that get built in this state. What is the best way to encourage them to do more to dramatically improve energy efficiency in this market segment? So the first one is thinking about the uh, QAP process for 2021 that is um, currently underway by Minnesota Housing Finance. It's currently open for public comments and those close July 22nd. There's a public hearing on July 14th. So commenting and making your voice heard that you want to see incentives for um, energy efficiency and particularly passive house um, certification is a huge step. There's also some efforts in the Minnesota legislature. So we know that a special session is coming up and we anticipate there could be um, work for um, bonding, increasing affordable housing funding, um, energy, in energy efficiency incentive programs. So we have a really strong ener renewable energy lobby in our state, that's fantastic. And when I look nationally compared to other states, we have less of a voice for um, energy efficiency programs. Um, which are equally important in getting to a carbon neutral future that is equitable for the people living in these spaces too and healthier and um, more comfortable for them. And then um, there's the advanced energy standard that has been talked about. So it's important to know that currently cities in Minneapolis can't require measures that are more efficient than state energy code, um, which is a, a few years behind where um, kind of best practices are in other states. So those are kind of three things to talk to your legislators about. And then finally, um, the biggest thing that I think would make a, an impact in getting these projects built to passive house standards um, is, comes from Massachusetts. So MassSave incentivizes um, passive house at a few different points, not only once it's built and constructed. Um, we really need to get funding upfront to get feasibility costs and um, energy modeling um, during pre-construction um, because there's a lot of these strategies like I talked about that are no cost and cheaper that project teams don't know about unless they have um, a building scientist and, and an energy modeler on their team right from the very beginning. So th that's kind of looking at the Massachusetts model and, and modeling programs after that it would be a game changer in Minnesota. Great, thank you. Um, let's see, now circling back to uh, the Q&A box here, this is a question from Chase, um, more around financing. Is there a sample of building budgets and project timelines for those projects discussed today, so as to compare and contrast with current traditional projects? Um, I'm not sure I understand the question. Um, <laughs> If I had to interpret, I think, um, to be able to proof out that we really can come in under budget with Passive House, are there demonstration projects that you can do direct compares like hook and ladder to conventional construction to be able to point to to de-risk that initial investment? Yeah, so we did some of that at hook and ladder, and I think the Northfield Affordable Homes is doing that as well. Um, those will be available hopefully soon. 
Great. And it, it sounds like there's some of that work coming out of other states like Pennsylvania as well. Yes. Yes, actually. So like looking at Pennsylvania and Massachusetts and Washington, I think um, there's a lot of projects. I, at the Pasifaz conference uh, last December, a contractor spoke about how his projects um, are coming in below standard construction costs because he's changed his process and it's more efficient um, and he's just making it work. So it's definitely a, a way of rethinking about building, um, not just adding something on to standard construction. It's thinking about how we do con standard construction in a more efficient way. Yeah, and to your point earlier, I think Pennsylvania has incorporated the Passive House standard pretty robustly in their QAP process as well. Yep, and that's where that contractor was from. Fantastic. All right, so next question is coming from Kim. Is all the energy for uh, the Passive House building at Hook and Ladder coming from on-site solar? No. Um, un enough energy is coming to meet the um, kilowatt hours per year per person goals. Um, that was the goal is under 6,200 for the passive 2015 standard, um, 3,800 kilowatt hours per year per person for the uh, 2018 standard, which we used on West Side Flats. So that solar is meeting those targets, but it's not a net zero building. Okay. Um, and then this is a question from Jackie, but I've seen this asked in a variety of ways through the Q&A box here. Um, and this is really around ventilation and uh, super um, energy efficient buildings that are built to passive house standards. Is there a danger of any toxins in the materials just off gassing in this construction based on the ventilation? Um, and then how does that relate to any of the combustion emissions or lack thereof if you're building all electric as well as passive? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. So the um, continuous ventilation is one of the really important strategies in Passive House that improves the indoor air quality. Also, when we're thinking about um, any kind of virus and um, health issues inside the building, you're turning over the air more frequently. You're doing it in a controlled way that passes through filters. Um, you're not sharing air between units, like leaking through the unit walls. And you're not just relying on leaky windows and gaps in your extra wall to provide fresh air for you. So um, it actually is much healthier air. <clears throat> Another thing to note is that FIAS uses, um, builds off, off other standards that in, include indoor air um, kind of safety requirements for materials. So no formaldehyde-free um, cabinets and um, low VOC paints and things like that. So it's another important consideration. Wow, so the materials themselves are built into the FIAS standards to avoid mm -hmm. some of that toxic mm -hmm. off-gassing. That's great. Yeah. Um, okay, the next question I oh, have and here. I guess I can say, um, and then all, all the appliances are electric too, so there's no combustion in the unit. Yeah, great. So next question from Marissa, turning back to funding again. Um, without substantial public funding, are projects like hook and ladder feasible? Um, so I, I'm not a developer, but I would go out on a limb here and say that I don't think that any affordable housing is feasible without public funding. So it's a matter of where we're, we're putting our, our funding. And um, I think that investing in energy efficiency if we're using public dollars is a really important strategy um, because we're investing in the long-term not only health of the people who are living there, but, and, and like lower energy bills, but it, it will pay off in the long run um, and be a building that's much less 
costly to operate. So, I mean, we think about that, that study I mentioned with the um, 65 unit properties, their average year construction was 1966 and they're using um, two to three times, three, three times the amount of energy to operate as the passive house building. So um, it's easy to get funding for kind of initial upfront costs and it's much harder to get funding for operational costs. So when we are thinking about how we're funding housing, um, I think thinking about the full life cycle cost and not just the initial cost is really critical. Um, so I'm going to turn back now to a question that was asked during registration, and this is from Martha. Uh, what is the best way to assure high performance buildings get built correctly in the field, especially in competitive bid situations? And I would add Tom to that. How do you make sure that the design is also inclusive of community uh, needs and um, mm -hmm. priorities? Yeah, so I, I think um, kind of two parts here. I'll talk about the community need. So the Bayview project in Wisconsin that I mentioned went through a really extensive process of engaging community members, um, which is something that we don't typically see in affordable housing design. Usually it's developers and designers kind of leading um, the design. Um, so they were able to make prioritized designs, designs that would design um, strategies that were most impactful for the people who are gonna live there. Um, and then I think I can't overemphasize the value of actually getting your project certified and using certified professionals because there is a robust, rigorous building science behind all of these things that I mentioned. And um, that's what's going to take, that's what it's going to take to do it most efficiently and cost effectively and have buildings that actually perform the way that we hope they will perform to certify and verify them. Awesome. Um, so we're just about at the half hour now. Um, and so, again, wanted to thank everyone who's joined us, uh, but also wanted to say, you know, if you want to hang out for a couple more minutes, I know Elizabeth would be happy to answer a few more questions and we can keep going um, for at least uh, another 15 minutes or so as long as there's interest. But uh, thanks again for joining if you have to drop off now. Thank you. Let's see. Um, so this is a question from Cameron. Um, he said, I heard the term energy independence. What does that mean to you? <laughs> that's a great question. So when we talk about energy independence, um, that's a term that came more from solar. Um, the idea that people can put solar panels on their house and um, be independent in terms of not having to rely on the fluctuation in energy prices um, and be kind of not not off the grid, but um, not as reliant on other um, sources of energy through utility companies. And um, when we talk about environmental justice, that has been something that's come up um, kind of repeatedly as well. Who can afford to put solar panels on their houses? Who can be afford to, to be energy independent um, is very different from the people who need that energy the dependent, independence the most. Um, so that's why you see some programs like community solar and other things popping up um, and, and as a desire to get this idea of energy independence to as many people as possible. Great. All right, now this is a question from Ted and I'm gonna interpret a little bit so I, um, apologize, Ted, if I'm not getting this right, but uh, today we've talked primarily about new construction, um, building to a BS standard. Um, this is the question about rehab, though, um, so retrofits. 
for single family, is it pretty much all or nothing or what priorities make sense for incremental retrofits? And I'm just gonna assume to make them as energy efficient as possible and even go the next step to go all electric for a cold climate air source heat pump for space heating. Yeah, so our focus has really been on new construction because that is the, that's where it's like a no-brainer and it's very cost-effective. And there's so many new construction buildings being built right now that are not um, taking advantage of all the like low-cost energy savings potential. So we haven't done a, a retrofit project. I see that um, Tim Eden is on the call and he has done a couple, so I recommend going to his website and looking that up. Um, what we know from some preliminary research, and again, not based on experience, um, is, is that the strategies of air sealing are really important and continuous ventilation with energy recovery. Um, and then uh, windows, uh, we'd like to see more continuous exterior insulation be added to buildings. Um, I think it's really hard to, to go to, like heat pumps, have def air source heat pumps is def have definitely increased in efficiency um, and their ability to operate at really low temperatures, um, but um, it's really critical that you also invest in your building envelope and not just mechanical systems, otherwise, um, in, in times of like a polar vortex, it'll be difficult to keep your, your building heated. Um, Great. And can you mention the firm that deals with uh, building retrofits just one more time for the audience? Yeah, so um, Tim Ian has his studio. Okay, Tim Ian, great. Tim Ian, E-I-A-N, mm -hmm. e yep. Okay, great. Um, let's see, another question from Kim. Was a social cost of carbon included in any of the analyses done on the projects that you've mentioned today? No, <laughs> uh, it's definitely something that we have been talking about, but I think it also highlights that there is just a lack of funding for these studies. So there's so much research that we want to be doing and we are just struggling to get basic building science incorporated into projects. So we really need to, to have cities and our state step up and pay for the science that we are capable of doing and really want to do that we just don't have the time or resources to do. Um, and I know Janet had to drop off, but uh, one question here from her, how did Precipitate work with the listed architect? Um, for instance, the hook and ladder project um, as Cass Wilson. Yeah, so um, hook and ladder was LHB and um, we worked as the consultant to LHB for that project. Um, for for uh, the Westside Flats project, we were hired directly by the city of St. Uh, Paul to be the consultant working with um, Cass Wilson, so we were a, a different contractual relationship. Yeah, and I, I think that um, in terms of the process, the process was pretty similar for both. We take the existing design, we do an energy model in a software called UV Passive that looks um, more at thermal bridging and continuous insulation and things like in air sealing than some other energy modeling programs do and um, share the results and then work through kind of a exercise of figuring out what was most feasible um, in terms of get, getting to the targets for Passive House. Okay, now I've heard this a lot. This is a question from Joe. Um, I'm always a little skeptical about air-to-air -air heat pumps in our really cold days. Um, and just to remind everyone in Minnesota, you know, our heating standard now is, uh, you know, how do we heat on a polar vortex day that, you know, is going to put us at negative 40 degrees. So um, the climate is a serious uh, 
challenge. Um, are they working okay or is the backup leaned on a lot? And I think specifically within um, uh, new construction development to pass the standards. Yeah, so I'll speak specifically to new construction. Um, I, I think that it's really dangerous to just add a heat pump to your existing building and hope it's gonna work out. I would not recommend doing that. Mm -hmm. um, at a minimum, you need to make sure that you're doing energy modeling of the loads to make sure that your um, backup heat can handle it. Um, when we did the modeling of the loads for the Northfield affordable townhomes, we did a calculation, we estimated really conservatively that um, for kind of the, we did a good, better, and best. So for the middle case, um, backup heat would be used about 10% of the time. And for the passive house compliant building, um, backup heat would be used about 5% of the time. And we think those are pretty high those are pretty high conservative estimates, um, but we're kind of modeling the worst case scenario. And that's going to do fluctuate on the year um, and is also gonna change, frankly, as air source heat pumps, the temperatures at, what they, which, at which they can operate effectively um, continues to drop. So rated in like negative 13 and negative 17 right now. And it's something that manufacturers are, are continuing to work on. And can you describe a little bit about the technology that you use for backup, just in terms of the resistance? Is that mm -hmm. ducted resistance? I mean, we think about this as baseboard heating primarily. Yeah, so you can certainly do baseboard heating, but there's, a like from a design perspective, it's not the, the greatest. Um, you can actually just insert electric resistance backup heat into the ductwork um, for your, that is used to distribute for, um, the air source heat pumps too. So that's kind of the most straightforward way to do it. Got it. Okay, a uh, question from Nicole. Are there local firms, I assume to the Twin Cities or Minnesota generally, uh, who can do fees testing? Uh, like the verification. Yeah, yep. So um, that's a good point. And just to clarify, there's two pieces. One is having a sort of passive pass consultant, and that's what we do. And that is um, helping you get through the design process. And then the passive pass verifier, those are um, similar. To, well, actually, they're HERS raters who have an additional couple day training. Um, the firms that I know that currently do that are Center for Energy and the Environment. Um, if there are more, please let me know. Um, but that's currently who's doing it in Minnesota. And they're the, they were the verifiers partnering with Eco Achievers out of Chicago for Hook and Ladder, and they are the verifiers for the Westside Flats project. Okay. So another question from Cameron. Uh, what are your three biggest needs for energy efficient new housing construction that can also serve affordable housing needs? I'm trying to think if this is a policy need or a like um, design need. And I think for policy, I'd say it's definitely paying for early phase energy modeling. Um, for kind of thinking about affordable housing um, design, um, air sealing and thinking about continuous insulation and eliminating thermal bridges, those are kind of your three most important things to do. And a lot of those things can be done without adding, like they're redesigning versus adding like additional things to your project. Um, 
windows are actually pretty important too. So I know like maybe a decade ago, there are a lot of studies that said like windows don't matter. If you have double pane and they're newer, it's fine. Um, and that's true if you're looking at standard construction. If you put a triple pane window in a standard wall, it's not gonna make much of a difference because your wall isn't great to begin with. Um, if you have a really highly efficient wall with like minimizing thermal bridging and um, it has a nice R value to it, the triple pane windows are actually gonna make a pretty big difference. Um, and then thinking about the solar heat gain coefficient. So how much light are you letting in that provides free heat to your building? Um, a lot of people, a lot of window folks, that window reps that you talk to will say like, oh, you wanna do energy efficiency? Do like our low E coating. Well, the low E coating is designed for warmer climates and it blocks um, the sun's rays from entering your home. Um, so you don't actually get a lot of that. You, you minimize the free heat that you're getting. So thinking really carefully about the performance specs of the windows is important. Okay, this is a great question from Marissa. Uh, you referenced that the hook and ladder project was on a leftover site that isn't desirable. So on the railroad, how do we create energy efficient, affordable housing opportunities on desirable sites so we don't further exclude and marginalize these households to undesirable areas? Um, I think that's a good, like, um, kind of existential question that I don't have the answer to. But I can also say that through design, we can we can really transform undesirable sites to desirable sites. So that's what um, LHB did when thinking about their site plan. They there's a community um, playground in the center of both buildings. So they used the Passive House building as kind of a shield from the railroad track and created a nice internal courtyard that is hopefully a little um, less noisy than it would have been if, if it was just right next to the, the track. And also used that build, building as a shield to the just, just a more limited extent to the other um, building that's on the site in the neighborhood. Uh, next question comes from Katie. Uh, what do you see as barriers besides cost to the construction of more passive slash efficient housing in Minnesota? And what are your suggestions or advice here? Mm -hmm. So I think that professional liability insurance is one of the biggest barriers. Um, just I started my firm three years ago and it's the, been the thing that's kept me from doing what I want to do because there is, there's incentives to built into how to how we run and operate things that um, we want to move forward with things that are proven and known have been tested for like 30 years and I mean you can see even like my presentation in answer to, to some of these questions like we've been involved with some things that it's not like it hasn't been done around the world in other states. Like there, there's no question that this technology is proven and it works, but it's um, not as common in the Minnesota market. And um, that makes, I think, architects and contractors and everybody just nervous um, because it's not something that they have done personally themselves before. Um, so I think, for example, with pricing from, from contractors, whenever you're doing something that you haven't done before, you have to add a contingency because it's not certain and you haven't done it a million times um, and you don't know what's going to come up that you might not be aware of from the beginning. And that's natural and reasonable. And so I think um, what, what we need from the building community is to not be afraid to take those risks. We know that this is better building science and results in um, 
like over the long run, more easily maintained and longer lasting buildings. However, um, I also don't think it's fair to put that burden on kind of the firms that are pioneering this work. So making sure that we have um, public subsidy and like incentives to be able to encourage people to take that step and not just bear the full burden um, of this work on their own, I think is really important and um, is an investment in the long time, the long term health and um, equity in our communities. And I'll just ask a quick question. Um, we've talked a lot about co-benefits for passive design. Um, can you speak a little bit to how you see energy burden for especially affordable housing uh, as it compares to conventional? And I think that's sort of one of the values of the upfront investment um, in, in developments like this as you see that drop off in energy burden. So this is a very complicated question and I think has to do with um, the HUD allowances for utilities. Mm -hmm. So because HUD allowances are based on past data and averages, um, for hook and ladder at least, the decision was made, there, there wouldn't have been any way to like pay back the investment um, in any other way. So they ended up, the utility allowance is kind of the same in what, what it's set at, and then the developer is the, the one benefiting from um, the decreased, assumed decreased utilities. Um, so I like creating that as a case study, I think will be helpful for future um, loan applications and things like that. Um, but in the meantime, um, I think that the energy burden is just more certainty, right? So your rent is all inclusive of all utilities. You're not, you're not um, moving into an apartment and then in the summer and surprised with hundreds of dollars in energy, energy bills in the winter. Um, so I think that's really important. And I know Minneapolis has been working on some policies for that too. Sure. Well, great. Well, we are at quarter after. This has been a really wonderful presentation and discussion. Um, Elizabeth, we really thank you for your time and for joining us and um, hope you can join us as well as everyone else here um, on our next call on Thursday next week for a conversation again with Janice Watts, my colleague, and uh, St. Paul City Council member Mitra Jalali as we dig in on um, reliability and affordability, um, especially around renters' rights. So thanks so much and uh, we will see you next week. Thanks, Elizabeth. Great, thank you. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to the audio recording of our webinar. If you like what you heard today, you can still register and join us in person for the webinar. Just go to the website at fresh-energy.org, click on events and find the truly affordable event listing. You can register there. You can stay up to date on Fresh Energy's work via our blog at fresh-energy.org or follow us on social media. In the meantime, thanks everyone for listening and subscribing to our podcast. You can support Fresh Energy's work by making a donation today. Visit that website, fresh-energy.org, and click Donate in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.